You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. All right, well, you may be seated. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Are you doing good? Glad you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're a guest with us, I want to formally welcome you. My name is Jordan. I have the privilege to serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer. And we are in a study of the Gospel of Mark. We're into chapter 12. We're walking with Jesus scene by scene, moment by moment. We're going to arrive uh, to the cross of Christ and to the resurrection of Christ by Good Friday and Easter. And so we're glad you're here with us. Before we get back into our text, I do want to let you know about something that's happening this week. This week, starting on Wednesday, begins the season of Lent. And um, like the season of Advent, the season of Lent is an important uh, part of the historic church calendar. I think that the season of Lent uh, is important for the church. I think there are many spiritual benefits to the church for participating in Lent. One of the things that Christians have historically done during the season of Lent is that they will fast. Uh, Christians will fast the 40 days of Lent. Those 40 days coincide with Jesus's 40 days that he spent in the wilderness, tempted and tried and starved on our behalf. And so Christians will, will fast during Lent as a, as a means of kind of putting off things in our life that have become uh, maybe too familiar to us, things that we have too strong of an appetite for uh, in this world. Maybe it's social media or Netflix or entertainment or certain foods or drinks, whatever it might be. And we put those away. We dial those back. We set those aside for 40 days in order to put on more time with God, to grow our hunger and our appetite for God. And so one of the things that we want to do during the season of Lent is invite you, if you call this church home, if you're able to fast together for 40 days during the season of Lent. So uh, be on the lookout. I've got an email that's drafted that will be sent, to, sent out tomorrow that has more information about Lent. Maybe you're new to Lent. What is Lent and why do Christians practice Lent? Um, and then and there'll be some information about fasting and maybe how to start to think about that. What would it look like for you to, 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 to I mean, I'm just, just think about what that would be. By the time we arrive to Easter, if for, for this church together for 40 days, we say we want to grow our hunger and our dependence and our appetite for God. That's the invitation during Lent. So be on the lookout for more information and start to think about maybe what it would look like to engage in 40 days of fasting. Okay, well, we are back in chapter 12. We've been studying Mark's gospel. We're into Jesus's final week of his life and his ministry. Uh, if you were around when we started the study of the gospel of Mark, Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, announces the coming kingdom of God. He says in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, um, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. This is how Jesus begins uh, his ministry in Mark's gospel. What does that mean? Jesus is essentially saying, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's essentially saying God's rule and God's salvation, his good governance and his rule and, and life in his kingdom, it's all breaking into this world of sin and death. Jesus is saying, it's at, at hand, salvation and life is here. He's saying, in me, repent and believe. Turn away from all other ways of living, all other ways of being ruled in this world. Turn away from those things, repent and believe. Turn to me if you want to live, if you want to have life, if you want to be rescued from this world of sin and death. That's how the gospel of Mark starts in chapter 1, verse 15. And then we see as we've walked through Mark, we've seen Jesus is following his groan. He's done amazing, remarkable things. And now he's entered into Jerusalem to the praise and to the expectations of the people. Maybe he really is the king. People are excited. 
but not everyone. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the religious leaders of Israel are not ready to crown him as king. In fact, they're ready to get rid of him. Through chapters 11 and chapter 12, Mark has given us different interactions between the religious leaders and Jesus. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to trap him. Ultimately, they're trying to destroy Jesus and get him out of the way, but it has not worked. In our text today, we see one final interaction between Jesus and those who are in authority during his day. Although this one is a bit different than what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. This one is not as adverse. This, action, this interaction is marked by a bit more sincerity. And so the scribe comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. It's a question that we're all asking. And Jesus is going to give him an answer. And it's an answer that we all need. Three things today, if you're taking notes, where I want to look at the question that he asks, which is a question that we're all asking the answer that Jesus gives, number two, and number three, the answer behind the answer. How's that? Does that pique your interest? The answer behind the answer. Let me pray. God, we, we do say that you are worthy, just as we sing. There is none like you. And as we open your word and as we seek to understand, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see you for who you truly are, to gaze into the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us. And most of all today, Father, I pray that you would simply help us to receive your love. Help us to receive the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, that our souls would be satisfied and that our lives would be set free from seeking and striving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's look back at the question. It's a question that we're all asking. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So this is all happening on the heels of the previous interactions that we've been walking through. We looked at one of those last week. We looked at the interaction where the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus, trying to trap Jesus. They ask him a humdinger of a political question, and Jesus amazes them. They marvel at his answer. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and, and listen because that conversation is important to this, to this text. And then there's another interaction that it's the, the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't trap him. And so they send the Sadducees to him and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him a theological question. Now we're skipping over that, um, but here's the short of, of what happens there. The, the, the Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection at the end of the age, but the Pharisees did. And so they would often kind of debate over this. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus and they pull him into the middle of this of this, um, of this debate of their day. Is there a bodily resur resurrection? And they ask him a rather ridiculous question. It's like this, um, this kind of, hey, there's this lady and she gets divorced and she remarries and she has, does happen seven times. Like if there's a bodily resurrection, who's her husband in heaven? It's basically the question that they ask. And Jesus answers them again in a way that shows that he has superior wisdom, superior insight, and they marvel at his answer once again. And so this scene is happening on the heels of all of this. This scribe in our text today has been overhearing all of it, starting with the, the political question and then the theological question. And it seems as, as if he is, uh, he is intrigued by Jesus. He's, he's struck by the superior 
wisdom of Christ. And so he too wants to ask a question. And so he comes to him, I believe out of curiosity. I don't think this is an adverse question. I think he's truly seeking understanding. Now, a few things about the scribes. Who were the scribes? Well, scribes were Pharisees. Not all, not all Pharisees were scribes, but all scribes were Pharisees. They were considered the experts in the law. They were kind of like, kind of like lawyers. They were the ones who had poured themselves over all of the Mosaic law, all of the law that we have in our Old Testament and Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. They've studied the law. They've poured themselves over the law. And their role was to kind of settle disputes among God's people about the law, acting again kind of like lawyers. And their role was also to police teachers. In other words, to make sure that Israel's teachers were teaching things that were in accordance with the true law. That was their their, their job. That's, we've seen them throughout Mark's gospel policing Jesus, making sure that what he's teaching is true to the law. So they're, they're these experts in the Jewish law. The scribes, they had indexed 613 laws of Moses. And it would be common in Jesus' day for people to debate those laws. They would talk about which of the law is most important, which, which of the law, the language they would use, what's heavy and what's light? What's most essential? What's most important for God's people to be focusing on right now? What's the heavy law and what law is light? And so here's this man. I think he's intrigued by Jesus. I think Jesus' uh, his wisdom, his superior knowledge, his insight is on display. It's palpable. People can feel it. They're marveling at his words. And he comes to Jesus with a question, which would have been a common question of a scribe to a rabbi, especially a teacher who has grown in such prominence. And he asks him this question, which commandment, Jesus, is most essential? What do you say? Like, what, what, what's, what's heavy, Jesus? What should we be focusing on and giving our lives to? What is central? Like, if we want, as Israelites, if we want God's blessing and we want God to lift us up into our future, what is most important for us to get God's blessing? This is the question that the scribe asks. Now, if you will remember a few moments ago, I said that the scribe asked Jesus a question that we are all asking, that we're all asking. What do I mean? Well, I think that every person, every person in this room and every person on this planet is also asking a similar question. What's the command? What, 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 what commands must I follow in order to get blessed? Like, what is it that I have to do? What, what do I need to do to make sure that my life is happy and whole, that I'm raised up? What, what is the command? Every person, whether religious or secular, I think is asking this same question, is on this quest. What is it that I must do? What's most important in my life in order to be blessed. And for the religious person, it ends up looking something like this. If I just do A, B, and C, if I come to church and I live a good moral life and if, you know, give every now and then and I raise my kids in church, and if I don't do X, Y, and Z, that's the next letter, right? X, Y, and Z. If I don't drink, if I don't smoke, if I don't chew, and if I don't date girls who do, then, um, then God will, will give me what I want. Then I'll be good. 
then I'll be whole. Then God will bless me. And so for the religious person, it's if I just kind of do the right things that God wants me to do, the most essential things that God wants me to do, then I will be good. Then God will give me what I really need and what I really want. I'll have blessing. I'll, I'll be blessed. I obey in order to get. And for the secular person, it's actually not that different. It's the same exact path. It's the same question. It might not be God's path that they're seeking to follow, but it's some other path. The thinking is the same. I'll be happy and I'll be whole if I just earn enough money. That's the greatest commandment. Make as much money as I can. Then then I'll be blessed. Then I'll be good. Then I'll be lifted up. Or maybe it's not about money. Maybe for others it's about approval and success. If I just get enough followers, if I make a name for myself, then I will be somebody in this world. See, achievement for, for that person, if that's you, achievement is the greatest command in life. Achieve, succeed, then I'll be somebody, then I'll be enough, then I'll be whole. Maybe it's not about what you need to do. Maybe it's about what you, what you won't do. I, I will never become like my father. I will never be like my mother. That's the greatest command. I'll never make the mistake that I made last time. I'll never let myself get hurt again like I did. That's the greatest command. You see, we are all in some way on a quest, asking the question, what is it that I must do to be happy, to be whole, to be blessed? And whatever that thing is, Whatever it is, we will build our life around that command, hoping that it will give us what we want. I just want to ask you for a minute, what is it for you? What is it for you? What is that most central, most important thing, that command in your life that you live to obey? You see, for the scribe, his life had been built around the 613 laws that were given in the Torah. 248 of them were positive, things that you should do. 365 of them were negative, things that you shouldn't do. They're all important. But what do you say, Jesus, is most important? What do you say, Jesus, is most essential if we want to have God's blessing? What's the way, teacher? Tell us, how do we get life? Look at Jesus' answer, verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe asks for one commandment and Jesus gives him two. Jesus' answer is the combination of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. If you're taking notes, you can make a note of that. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and then he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. The first, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, is known as the Shema. In, in the same way that if you are, grew up in or around Christianity today, you would know John three sixteen, or you would know the song, Jesus Loves Me. In the same way, if you were an Israelite, you would know the Shema. Um, most uh, Israelites would, would repeat the Shema twice uh, daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In a way, it is a synopsis, a reminder, a remembrance of God's covenant that he made with Israel. It's the promise that he would be their God and that they were to be his faithful people. But then Jesus adds Leviticus 19, 18 to the Shema. He says the command to love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting what Jesus is doing here. It's like he's combining them into this three-in-one commandment. This three-in-one commandment. Three things that Jesus combines into one essential commandment that he says is the way to life, is the way to happiness, is the way to wholeness, is the way to blessing. This three-in-one. I want to kind of unravel them for us a bit. First, he says, remembering and acknowledging who God is. That's where it starts. We can't obey God rightly and respond to God rightly unless we acknowledge who he is rightly. And so hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who is God? Well, he is the Lord God. Who is he? He's the one true God. He's the good creator of everyone and everything. And unlike the, the idols or the little gods of the world, Israel's God was one. It's one God that we worship who made the whole earth and all that is in it. The earth is his. He's not only the creator, but the Shema was designed to remind them that he was their redeemer. He's not just God, the creator. He's the Lord God. He's Yahweh. He's their redeemer. He's the one who's rescued them miraculously out of slavery in Egypt. Remember who he is, the creator, the redeemer. He's also their sustainer and their provider. He's the one who provides them with manna in the wilderness. He's the one who leads them into the promised land. Remember who he is. He's your God, the Lord God. Our God is one, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the provider. He's also the king. He is the one who governs us with his good rule, who guides us with his gracious law, who gives us his presence through tabernacle among us. Who is our God? He is the Lord God. He is one. This is who he is. There is none like Yahweh. This is what this was designed to do. Remember who he is. Acknowledge him. And what does he require of his people? What does he require? Is he like Pharaoh? Does he keep us in bondage? What is the Lord God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the provider, the king? What does he do? He asks us to love him. In light of who he is, in light of what he's done and all that he's promised, his people are to love him. Love him how? Love him above all and love him with all. This is what it means. With all of our will, that our will, our heart, our will would be pointed toward loving him above all. With all of our vitality and energy, with all of our, with all of our soul, that's what that means. With our vitality and energy, that it's going to loving God above all. With our thoughts and our intellect, with our mind, our mind is formed and shaped by the truth of who God is. With all of our ability and might, with all of our strength, we love him in light of who he is and what he's done and what he's promised above all and with all. This is the command. And what is the proof of loving God above all? What does Jesus say? What does he add here? The proof of loving God above all and with all. What does it look like in action? It looks like love of other people, no matter who they are, Samaritan or Jew. Interestingly enough, in Luke's account of this scene, Jesus follows up this question and his answer to this question, the scribe says, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells the, the story of the good Samaritan, right? 
So no matter who they are, how do we know if we're loving God above all and with all? The proof of our love is that we love other people as God loves them, whether rich or poor, strong or weak, whether people are like you or unlike you. It's to see other people the way God sees them, no matter who they are, to see other people. Every coworker, every classmate that you have, every neighbor, every race, every nationality, the person in the suit to the man under the bridge, made in his image, full of dignity, in need of love. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, to see others like you, just like you, just like yourself, made in the image of God, in need of grace, and in need of truth. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the most central, most important of all of the commands. There is no other way to life. There is no other way to blessing other than acknowledging God for who he is, loving him above all, and seeing others the way that he sees them. If you follow this path, this is the pattern to abundance. This is the pattern to freedom. Now, as I was studying this week, I was thinking about this. I want you to consider this for a moment. What is the exact opposite of what Jesus says? Like, what is the opposite? Like, if you were just going to go completely against Jesus' commandments here, Jesus' teaching here of what is most essential, what would that look like? What is the opposite? Well, first, it would be to fail to acknowledge God for who he is. It would be to make someone or something else as ultimate. Someone or something else as the Redeemer. Someone or something else actually will fix me. Someone or something else will sustain me. Someone or something else will provide for me. Someone or something else rules my life and my time and my money and my devotion. And then, number two, it would be to love for and to live for that thing with all of your might above all, to reorient your life around it, to chase it, to pursue it at all costs, even if it means hurting other people. Whether it be money or power or fame or pleasure or success or comfort, I reorient my life around it, I seek it above all, even if it means hurting other people. Does this not sound familiar? Does it not? I mean, does this not sound like the world that we live in? Even at a macro level, does it not sound like the world that we live in where nations are raging and there's greed and there's corruption and there's exploitation? On a micro level in our own individual lives, I mean, I think this is why marriages struggle the way that they do because we are, uh, we, we are acknowledging something else and we're living for something else above God, and it's tearing apart our relationships or our, or our friendships. I think this is why so many lives are doused with shame or guilt, with insecurity or with anger, because you've made something else central to your life, something that's too small, something that's too fickle, career success or money or comfort or pleasure, you've made that thing the ultimate thing and it cannot sustain you. It cannot satisfy you. It will not satiate the hunger of the soul. You see, all of the problems in our world and in our lives would be solved, would be undone if we could just agree with Jesus here about who God is. It seems that the scribe actually agrees with Jesus. All the other stuff the scribe is going to go on to say would be obsolete. All of the other laws, though those 600, how many did I say? 600, and let me look at my notes. What did I say? 613. All of that other stuff would no longer be needed if Israel could just keep this command. They wouldn't need the sacrifices and the purity law. 
It seems the scribe agrees with Jesus. Look at his response in verse 32. All that other striving and seeking wouldn't be necessary. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more. If, you're taking, if, if you have a Bible, underline that. Is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What is he saying here? Well, he's acknowledging that there is indeed a way of relating to God, a way of living for God, a way of knowing God that goes beyond religious activity. In other words, he's saying there's a way of living that eliminates striving, that ends the quest. He wants that kind of life. He wants that kind of relationship where the, the striving and the seeking and all of that stuff, it, it ends. And there's a, a relationship with God that is all satisfying. How do I know that this is what he's saying? The, the words in verse 33 are key. I told you to underline that where he says, you're right, teacher. You're right. Uh, your way, what you just said, knowing God and loving God from a pure heart, loving God above all is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That phrase, much more, that language, it gets translated as much more into English in the ESV translation of the Bible. Um, all scholars would agree that that, is, that language could be, maybe even should be by the ESV, be translated as exceeds or is better than. Exceeds or it's the same exact verbiage, the same exact language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 where Jesus tells the scribes, oddly enough, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds or is more than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It's the same language in the Greek there that it is here. And so what is he saying? This scribe is saying, I agree, Jesus, we need a better way, a better way of knowing God, a better way of worshiping God, a better way of life and blessing than burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what he's saying. And this, by the way, is a radical thing for a scribe to say, standing in the temple just days before the what? The Passover. We need a better way to know God, to relate to God, and to find life and blessing than all of our activity, than burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's a radical thing to say. And look at Jesus' response in verse 34. I'm almost just imagining Jesus smiling here. Look at this response in verse 34. And Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And by the way, this kind of ends all of the questioning. Nobody dared ask him anything else. He says, you're not far. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This man is so right. We do need a better way. We need a better way than all of the striving, than all of the activity. He's so close. He's so warm. It reminds me of that, the, the game Hot or Cold. You guys remember that game? It's like getting warmer, getting warmer, getting warmer. Getting, he's so close. He's so close. Perhaps he's starting to understand why Jesus has been doing all that we've seen him do over the last few days, over our last few weeks of studying Mark, why he curses the fig tree, why he condemns the temple and its leaders. Because soon, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices will no longer be needed either. 
No longer will they need the Passover festival. No longer will they need sin offerings. No longer will they need the scapegoat because the true Passover lamb of God is standing in their midst. You are not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And it's not because you've come nearer in your own striving and in your own seeking, but because I have come near to you. You see, Jesus is about to do something for the world. Jesus is about to do something for us that we can never do for ourselves in all of our striving and all of our seeking. That question, that human quest of what must I do to be blessed? More money, more achievement, more success, more my kids' performance, more pleasure, more comfort, more freedom, that striving, that quest, that question will soon be answered. And it will be a simple answer. It will be repent and believe. The same thing that Jesus started with in Mark 1.15. Repent, turn away from all other ways of living, all other seeking, all other striving, all other ways of trying to find life in yourself and in this world and turn to me. You see, that question, what must I do? That question that we're all asking, we will stay enslaved to that question until we see the love of God for us in Jesus. Will you hear me, please? You will stay enslaved, even clothed in religious performance. Enslaved, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do? What must I do? Next house, next thing, next job, next pleasure, more comfort. You will stay enslaved to it until you see the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Will you see his love for you this morning? You see, it is his love, God's love for you that frees us. I want to ask you a real simple question. Do you know the love of God this morning? Better. Have you received it? Will you receive the love of God? It's one thing to know it. Will you receive it? Will you let it stop your your striving and your seeking? Stop the waywardness? Stop the worrying? Stop the wondering? But will you see God's love for you in Jesus Christ and turn to it and receive it? I want you to hear one more scripture as we close. This is 1 John chapter 4. Would you hear this? In this... The love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. That we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay our price. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see how Jesus now is the fulfillment of the command? Do you see how he's central in the command? Because God so loved us in the Son, we now are free to actually love other people. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. Will you receive the love of God this morning? If you will, it will so free you. It will so free you to stop the seeking and stop the striving, stop the the using of other people. Other people all of a sudden just get to be people that you love because you don't need them anymore. God gets to be someone that you delight in rather than somebody that you got to kind of do what he wants in order to get from him what you need. 
Would you receive his all-satisfying love? As we close this morning, I want to invite you to do nothing more than receive God's love for you. Don't block it. (laughs) Don't say, well, yeah, but receive it. His love for you. Let me pray. Father, what an amazing privilege it is to call you Father, to be so loved in Christ Jesus, so free. You are enough in every way for us. You are our creator. You've put the breath in our lungs. You are our redeemer who has purchased for us forgiveness and freedom through the precious blood of the Son, setting us free from slavery, from seeking, from striving. You are sustainer. You sustain us by your spirit, through your word, with your sacrament. You are provider. You are king, Jesus. I pray the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May you direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ as we respond to your word. We want to experience your love this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.